So, hey guys, we are back for another historical history podcast. Uh, we had such a great podcast with Mark Boardman that an, an amazing, fantastic writer. Now, he's listening to this buildup, and his head is going to get really swelled up on the end. But he really is somebody that I value and I look up to on the history world. Luckily, we're about the same height, so we're going to look at each other eye to eye. But um, I look up to him because of the books that I've read and and I love what he's doing. And I think you guys are going to love this podcast. I can't wait. I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, today's podcast is brought to you by Peter Brand and the TombstoneVendetta.com. You can find all of Peter's books here and uh, the story of Johnny Tyler, the story of Texas Jack Vermillion. And it's not on the website, but if you ask about it, um, I really recommend that you read The Life and Crimes of Peter Mallon. And you can research, if you can't find it, it is a small book, but it explains a lot about Peter Mallon and what went on with Doc Holliday in Denver. And it was, it, it's an, um, an awesome read. And you can do all of that by going to Tombstone Vendetta, V-E-N-D-E-T-T-A, Vendetta, Dot com and you can find the books there and you can buy them and 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 it's uh, I'm telling you you guys are going to love it that's where you want to go we also have another sponsor and this sponsor is going to be somebody that's going to be partnering with me on every historical podcast and that's the WWHA and that is the Wild West History Association Wild West History Association uh, say that five times fast and you can find everything about them on the wildwesthistory.org website. Now, the reason I bring it up is, is that I'm a huge fan and I'm a member of the WWHA because I got tired of learning about history off of photos on Pinterest and people were posting Wikipedia articles. And honestly, the WWHA is the best way to go. It's 75 bucks a year. You get the WWHA journal that is a quarter inch thick journal. Now, if you saw the journal, it would be $15 to purchase on a magazine rack and you get four of those a year. And so you're, you know, it's the, for 75 bucks, it's a huge value because you'll be able to read and learn about wild, wild west history exactly the way the researchers read it out of the history books and off of the newspapers and the pictures and all the research they do. And that is your link. If you're a Wild West history buff like I am, that is your link into true researched history with true provenance, not made anything up. And I I cannot recommend you enough to join the WWHA. Now, they do not pay me to say that. I'm just telling you that because as soon as I joined the WWHA, I got to connect with amazing researchers and writers, and you're going to love. I'm telling you that journal is insane, and you're going to love everything about it. And again, you can find them at wildwesthistory.org. So today's podcast, if you didn't know, is actually going to be with Peter Brand. And Peter Brand comes from Sydney, Australia. He's written three books. Um, he's got a bunch more on the way. I can't wait to read them. And then I can't wait to tell you about them because you're going to want to buy them. And Peter is a phenomenal writer. What Peter specializes in, and I know that he'll correct me if I'm wrong, he specializes in the backstories, 
Like everybody writes about Wyatt Earp. Everybody writes about uh, Morgan Earp. Everybody writes about Doc Holliday. But who writes about the people, the backstory people, the people that are in the shadows of the of mainstream history? The Peter researches that and gets out and finds those backstories. And the book about Johnny Tyler is insane. I love it. It's called The Story of Johnny Tyler, A Tombstone Gambler War, and you're going to love it. And the, it actually has more Doc Holiday history in there than I expected. So please go to tombstonevendetta.com tombstonevendetta.com, and get the Johnny Tyler book. Um, and so welcome, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Wow, what a what a introduction, Mike. Thank you very much for all that, and um, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, as people can tell by my accent, I'm um, I'm Australian, and I'm currently sitting here in Sydney, Australia. It's uh, it's a sunny uh, autumn morning here, and and because we have the exact opposite. Um, seasons to you because we're in the southern hemisphere but it's great to be online with you i haven't met you personally but we've talked a lot and we've texted a lot and i'm really uh looking forward to this podcast well i i have to ask a couple of things do australians really say that's not a knife i've got a knife like paul hogan or is that all made up <laughs> I've only heard that once, and that was in the movie, okay. uh, Crocodile Dundee, but I've been asked many times when I'm in, a, in the States to actually repeat that line, and uh, we all get a laugh out of that. I'm not going to ask you to re- And do Australians really throw a shrimp on the bobby? Um, we, we actually call uh, that seafood a prawn, a prawn. down here. So uh, in a, I know in America they're called shrimp and jumbo shrimp but in australia we refer to them as prawns or king prawns okay well we're learning a lot i can't wait to uh that that's good (laughs) because you know what i envision every australian listening to men at work um and and driving around with a paul hogan uh picture in their car um (laughs) (laughs) perhaps perhaps in the 1980s he he did he was very influential and we do have to thank him for putting Australia on the map in some regard um, because his movie was very original and he wrote it and uh, produced it, acted in it. So, you know, he did have a lot going for him, but like you say, it, it did create a lot of cliches that that have stuck, um, which, which aren't altogether 100% correct. Well, let's get into some history and let's get into Peter Brand because we got a lot to talk about. And if we go too long... We will beg and plead for Peter to do a part two and maybe a part three, but let's get into the history and get into Peter Brand because you're a writer that lives in Sydney, Australia. Um, your passion or one of your passions is the Wild West in America. I ask every writer, how did you get into Wild West history? What brought you here? Yeah. It started back as I was growing up. I was I was a kid, an impressionable kid, growing up in the nineteen sixties, and uh, you know the early part of the nineteen seventies. And um, I was fed a constant diet on TV of of westerns, as we all were at that time. So Australia did not have um, its own uh, prolific TV production. So we imported. 
as as most of the world did. We imported a lot of TV shows from um, from the US and a lot of movies we saw out of Hollywood. And at that time, it was predominantly westerns that were on TV. And uh, coincidentally, my my father was a professional artist. And um, through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, he was um, drawing and illustrating for pulp um, fiction magazines. That These were monthly magazines that were published, um, I'm sure, obviously in America, but we had our own version that were published out here for Australia and in the UK. And he was employed to illustrate a lot of the... Uh, the action that was taking place in those pulp fiction stories. So he was drawing film, uh, sorry, detective noir stories, and he was also doing a lot of Western art. So as a little kid, I, I got to see him um, meticulously drawing gunfights and gamblers and stagecoach robberies and things like that. And and I thought, wow, you know, th- this is this is amazing. People are buying this stuff. They're they're reading. My dad's drawing it. It's selling. And then at night, I'd I'd sit there and I'd watch, you know, Bonanza or Laramie reruns or Rawhide reruns, and I'd and I got fascinated with with the whole aspect of of this broad Western landscape with gunfighters and and boom towns and stagecoach robberies. So I had a, a visual, um, it had a real visual impact on me, and that's what I digested as this impressionable youth. But you're and that's fa- what re- I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's what really ignited the spark in me. I, I, I had a, a real um, lust to learn more about these stories as I, as I grew up. But I want to talk about your dad. Before we yep. continue on, because your father was, uh, he's no longer with us, I correct? Yeah, sadly, uh, he passed in September of 2017. Um, he was approaching 90. Mm. Uh, he was two months shy of his 90th birthday. So he was, um, he was even drawing uh, right up until, you know, a couple of weeks before he passed away, which I thought was pretty incredible too. But, yeah, he was a professional artist. So um, after just after World War Two, he graduated through what was then called the East Sydney Technical College. He graduated uh, in art, and he then, uh, once he graduated, he uh, was employed uh, professionally as an artist, which I guess not many people can say that their their father earned their living that way. Um, so it was a unique situation. Um, you know, I'd go off to school and every other kid's dad would, you know, be a plumber or an electrician or a truck driver or, you know, a policeman or a fireman, but my dad was an artist. So it was quite unique in that way. And um, so I experienced a lot of things that other kids didn't. But when your father's an artist, he's drawing um, Western history and other things, I'm sure. He Yes, so at, at that time, um, at the time I mentioned the, the 50s, I wasn't obviously around in the 50s, but he, was, he had a back catalogue that I could look through of work that he had done in the 50s. Um, and then into the 60s, well into the 60s, these pulp, uh, Western uh, 
fiction magazines or uh, booklets were, were available monthly in the newsagent or the the drugstore or the supermarket or whatever you'd want to call it over there. Um, and so he would be employed to actually do the cover art, so the the bright, brilliant, bold colours with a with an exciting scene on the front to capture your, your visually. And then someone else would write the actual story, the Western story or the detective story. And then he would be also employed to illustrate a dramatic scene or a couple of dramatic scenes that occur in the story. So, you know, he wasn't just doing the cover art. He was also doing the action um, illustrations that were within the story as well. So as you page through, you'd come to a fist fight or a gunfight or a stagecoach robbery or something of that nature. So, was, you know, it, it was um, it was fun too for me. Obviously, it was hard work for him, but it was fun for me to look at these things. But when he took and started instilling you, Peter's young, he's growing up, um, you're starting to fall in love with doing other things, fall in love with Western history. You're, you're looking at it. Did, did the two of you make trips to America so he could show it to you or what, when, or when did you finally make it to America to make it to a place like Tombstone or where did you end up going as your first trip? No. So we, we, dad, dad saw it strictly as a job, that particular part. He, he loved art. He loved all forms of art, but um, at the same time, it was work. So he was very um, invested in hard work. He he was very thorough with his details, um, and he was very persistent. So he he saw that as a job, whereas I saw that as entertainment. He was creating in visual entertainment for for people, as were as were Hollywood and, and all those TV westerns I mentioned. They were visual and um, storytelling for entertainment, whereas he saw his his work was his work. job. They, like, he was he was putting mm-hmm. bread on the table, but but for me it was entertainment. So he would you know finish his his work, and 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 to be fair, as that as that diminished, as we all know, you know. Science fiction took over, and then you know, cop shows took over, and so westerns kind of went on the wane, and they stopped making TV series, they stopped making movies. So that pulp fiction um, work sort of died out on him too, and then he had to diversify and do other things. So when I was actually becoming a young adult, he'd moved on, and he was now illustrating. Um, for, for other uh, products, like he, start, he got into design packaging and he got into other things, whereas I continued um, to grow and, and you know, see, I, I, I saw Western movies when they came out, like um, I, I loved The Outlaw Josie Wales, I loved um, the movie The Long Riders about um, the James Younger gang and things like that. So I continued to do that. He went on to do his other his other work. But I, I didn't get a chance to travel to the United States to see where all these things took place until 1991. So, you know, I, I got a job and I started earning enough money and, and eventually in 1991 I decided it's time. I want to get over to the US. I want to see where all these shows and movies were filmed or or the basis where they were filmed. Like, I wanted to go to Tombstone. I wanted to go to Virginia City. I wanted to go to Deadwood. Um, I wanted to be in those places. And that, that was my first 
uh, toe-in-the-water sort of thing. I, I, I thought, if I can get there and experience hands-on, like I know that you, Mike, you travel, you like travelling to these places and videoing them and, and you know, standing where they stood and seeing ghost towns. And I wanted to do the same thing, but it didn't happen until 1991. That was my very first trip. When you came here then, here you are, young Peter, 1991, you make it to southern Arizona. Was it overwhelming or was it exactly what you visioned? Well, I got to tell you that what was overwhelming was landing in Los Angeles airport because everything in America is so much bigger and more populated than it is in Australia. So the very first um, moment that I got off that plane and and got in a rental car, got on a freeway and started heading towards Arizona, that was overwhelming. That was that was mind boggling for me. Just the the number of people, the number of cars and trucks, the the huge infrastructure, freeways. Um, you guys, it's second nature because you've grown up with it, but from Someone coming from a smaller country uh, with less population and less infrastructure of that size, it was overwhelming. But when I when I eventually got out of of the main populated areas and I hit that uh, freeway that takes you, you know, that interstate, should I say, that takes you through Blythe and then into Arizona and then and then you're in the desert. That that was that was when I really thought, wow, I'm here. Uh, you know, you could see for miles. There was mountains in the distance. There's desert all around you, and and then eventually, you know, I made my way down, um, bypassed Phoenix, headed down towards Tucson. Saw my first saguaro cactus, and I was blown away by that because that's an iconic image in all, you know, Arizona westerns. Um, uh, yeah, that was when I really thought, wow, you know, I'm here. Like, you know, it was, it was one of those mind-blowing moments where you think, I'm here, I can't believe it, but I'm here, I did it. (laughs) Well, I have to tell you, I drive that interstate often uh, between Los Angeles and Phoenix. It's Interstate 10, and I drive it a lot, and I still never get bored with the drive. There's always something to see. So I get it when you said the vastness and the open, the desert, the mountains. It's a, even though some people take it for granted, I love the drive. When, when you got to Tombstone and you left Tucson and got into Cochise County and then finally got to where you've been reading about, what was that like? Well, I got to tell you one thing I did do, um, I'd read um, about old Tucson, the old film studio, uh, or the old—I um, guess you'd call it a film studio. Yeah, it's the old site Tucson. Where they made a lot of, old Tucson, where they made a lot of these uh, old Western movies. Yep. I wanted to visit that first mm. because it was on the way, and you know, it, it was at the time it was fully uh, operational, and it had a lot of the old original backdrops and scenes from. Um, a lot of movies that I'd, that I'd seen, Gunfight of the OK Corral and um, many others, the, the High Chaparral TV series, I knew there was a connection there. Um, so I, 
1991, I, I made a stop there and I did the tourist thing first. I went through old Tucson and even that was fun, you know, the seeing, walking those dusty streets, even seeing some of the corny reenactments, that, that was fun too. Um, but I wanted to tick that off my list on the way to Tombstone because I knew Tombstone was going to be the real thing. Um, but I wanted to go to old Tucson first. So I did that, um, knocked that off and then, um, being very naive, I arrived uh, in Tombstone um, on the Labor Day weekend in September, uh, not being very aware of anything, being my first time there. And it turned out the Labor Day weekend in Tombstone back in 1991 Crazy. was what they called the was was what they called the the rendezvous of gunfighters. So it was a long weekend, and they had reenactment gunfighter groups from all over the southeast um, converging on Tombstone for that long weekend to all do their own reenactments and to meet and greet and, and have a good time dressed in period costumes. So here I was arriving in Tombstone uh, on this uh, long weekend. I was lucky to get a room. I hadn't booked a room. I was lucky to get a room. Um and there I was immediately immersed in this town where all the action had taken place, but surrounded by basically 90% of the population that weekend was dressed in period costume for this particular rendezvous. I, I don't think they have it anymore, but at that time they did, and I was completely blown away. He was me in my tourist T-shirt but completely surrounded by gunfighters, shady ladies, Doc Holidays, all the brothers in various forms. It was amazing, truly amazing. It was everything I'd ever dreamed of, and here I was. I was living it. So a young Peter is in Tombstone. You've grown up with a father who is an artist and instills your passion for the Wild West, you show up in Los Angeles and make that long drive. I know that long drive. And somewhere along the way, you either decide that you want to write a book or you want to learn more or probably not writing a book, but learn more. How did that go about? Because you could have gone to Tombstone and just left there and said, well, that's it, and gone back home. My heart tells me that you went there and went, I want to know more. Yeah, well, I, I'd seen um, a couple of movies about Tombstone, and Tombstone um, obviously has an incredible legend and story about it. Obviously, the gunfight at the OK Corral is one of the – the iconic images throughout the world, I think, of the Wild West. Um, and I had seen a movie that isn't as well known as some of the others. Uh, it's called Hour of the Gun, and it stars James Garner as Wyatt Earp, and Jason Robards plays Doc Holliday. And I'd seen that movie you know, prior to going on, on my first trip, I'd seen it late one night on late night television. It, it, um, it came on, I was still up late. It came on, has a very, very dramatic opening sequence where the Earp 
brothers and Doc Holliday are walking to the OK Corral to confront the Cowboys. And it's a it's an unusual movie because it doesn't have any of the build-up to the gunfight. It actually starts at the gunfight. So, and it has, like I said, it has very dramatic opening scene, very very dramatic music and it got me in straight away like I'd never seen it before and it was on as I say it just popped up on late night TV I was captivated by the, the music the the imagery of the four men walking to the fateful gunfight of the OK Corral and this movie tells a, a different story it starts at the OK Corral and then it tells you about the Vendetta ride which I hadn't really heard of before because the famous Burt Lancaster movie, Gunfight at the OK Corral, doesn't, it ends at the at the gunfight. It doesn't start there. So this movie by John Sturgis takes, takes place at the start and then tells you about what happened after the gunfight. So that was a, a captivating story for me. And when I landed in Tombstone, I, I didn't really know the facts. I only knew what I'd seen on TV. There weren't many books available for sale in Australia on the topic. So once I hit Tombstone, I, I visited every shop on Allen Street looking for books on the subject. And I, I bought everything. I bought I bought books by Ben Trawick, who was at that time the, the town historian of Tombstone. I bought a lot of his books. He, he seemed to be very prolific in writing, mainly for the tourist trade at that time. I bought um, Paul Mitchell Marks had just published a book on the gunfight. I bought that. Michael Hickey was a prolific author back in the day. I bought everything that was on the shelf by him. Um, I, I tried to buy every single book I could. I ended up having to buy an extra bag to carry on the plane with me home because I had so much reading material on Tombstone and, and I couldn't get enough of it. So um, I, I really, I even bought booklets on the, the smaller characters like Buckskin Frank Leslie and uh, Johnny Behind the Deuce and all these other amazing characters with fantastic um, nicknames, Curly Bill Brocious, Johnny Ringo. I mean, those names, at first when I'd watched the movies, I thought someone's made those names up. Those names cannot be for real. But when I got to Tombstone, I realised that they were real characters. They, they, No one had made up those names. They were the actual names of these characters that lived and breathed and walked those streets of Tombstone, and I couldn't get enough of it. I was like a kid in a candy store. It, it was like... Uh, all my dreams had come true on that very first trip. And I had a drink at the Crystal Palace Saloon. And very, very lucky for me, um, I sat down at a table uh, at, the to uh, at the Crystal Palace and there were two people dressed in period costume that uh, were uh, very nice and allowed me to share their table. And... Their names were Chuck and Jean Smith, and they were sort of locals. They they lived in Safford, which wasn't too far away, and they were able to immediately greet a tourist, realise that I was, you know, very wide-eyed and um, 
not knowing what was going on with all these people dressed in period costume for the rendezvous of gunfighters. And they talked me through the whole event and they told me what was happening, why these people were dressed that way, what the weekend entailed. And I made really good contact with these very nice people who I deemed as locals. They weren't actually living in Tombstone, but they were locals. They were dressed in period costume and they were there to have a great time. So... My very first trip was all positives. I, I can't say enough about how great that trip was. It, it really got me hooked on everything to do with Tombstone. But more importantly, it, it focused me right in on the story of the Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday and the Cowboys, the gunfight, the vendetta. That story had was so big that it kind of dwarfed the other movies and TV series that I'd watched. And that got me hooked. So you, let's get, okay, so a couple of things. One, you mentioned about the people in Tombstone. I go to Tombstone a lot, obviously, because I live here. And what you said is true about the people of Cochise County and Tombstone is that they're, they are always ready to tell about Tombstone history, to share what they know, um, like, I've never had a bad experience in Tombstone, ever. And I've been there at least 20-plus times. I think that that what you said about Gene and Chuck Smith is holds true, because we're going to talk about Gene Smith in a little bit, is that, you know, people there, they like to share their story, and they like to share it with others, especially other people that have a real interest in learning the truth, not just learning what they see on TV or in a movie. When, Correct. When you Correct. when you started towards this path mentally, had you written books before? Had you ever been a writer before? No, I'd, I'd always been a consumer. So I'd been like everybody else. I'd watched the TV shows and movies. I'd I'd read a little bit, you know, maybe an article or two here and there, a feature piece in a magazine. Um, you know, waiting in a doctor's surgery or something. I'd never really um, thought of myself as as being um, able to advance the story. I was I was a consumer. I was just a tourist in Tombstone, wanting to know more. And and my the reason I mentioned Hour of the Gun, the movie before, because that was the movie that really ignited my interest in um, what happened after the gunfight. Uh, and when I got to Tombstone, one of the things I really wanted to learn about was that Vendetta ride because of that movie. Uh, I thought James Garner did a great job in that movie, and that movie was one of the, the movies that tells you how he recruited men for his Vendetta posse and how he wanted to take revenge for the the shooting of his brother Virgil and the murder of his brother Morgan. But no other movie had shown that except Hour of the Gun. So when I got to Tombstone, I was I was really anxious to read more about that particular side of the story. But when So I was sitting there I'm sorry, yep, go, ahead. go on. No. I was gonna ask you as you're as you're telling that, and I apologize for interrupting. There's a but there's a time there. You went to Tombstone in nineteen ninety one and the Texas Jack Vermilion book, the Vendetta Posse Writer, didn't show up till 2012. So that is a Correct. long gap of time for you to research. Obviously, there was life in the middle of it and work and things like that. How long, as you're telling your story, 
how long did it take you to get out Jack Vermillion and the Vendetta Posse writers? Well, it, it started, um, the, these, the process didn't start obviously in 1991, 1991, I was a tourist. So as I said, I had to buy an, an extra bag to carry the books home with me. I'd made this great connection with, uh, two amazing people, Chuck and Gene Smith. As it turned out, that was a very, very lucky thing for me to do because of all the people that could have, um, let me sit down at their table, these two people were not only Arizonans, local Arizonans, but Jean Smith was a genealogical researcher. So she she was already uh, involved in researching her family and Chuck, Chuck was involved with researching his family and they had access to records and they knew where to find records um, that I had no idea about. So in the beginning, we just developed a friendship. We just stayed in touch after I returned to Australia with my with my bag of books and I started reading. Um, and we stayed in touch and, and we'd write letters back and forth. Emails weren't around at that time. So, you know, it was all to do with um, taking the time to write a letter, um, telling an update on everyday life. But when I got home... You know, all tourist trips end. So when I got home, I started to read everything that had been written about um, the tombstone story from all sorts of authors, as I mentioned before. And what disappointed me was that there was very little of substance that had been written about the people that rode on that vendetta with Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. So Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp, their names are familiar around the world. They dominate any paragraph when once you mention those two names people focus in on those names but what i realized was that there were so many other people in the story and i'd read a lot about those two guys wyatt and doc and wyatt's brothers but there was very little of substance written at all about these other men that that were involved in the story on both sides to some extent but particularly with Wyatt Earp and his men. I'd realised that, you know, once Morgan Earp had been murdered, uh, Wyatt decided to take violent action against the men that had perpetrated that that murder because he realised that he wasn't going to get justification through the, the courts. So I read that in these books that I was reading and then they'd say, these books would say, so he gathered a group of men together and went out on the famous Vendetta ride. But I would ask myself, well, who were these men that were on the Vendetta ride? What, what were their names? What were their backgrounds? Why were they risking their lives for Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and, and Earp's brothers? Why were they doing this? And there was nothing in these writings that I was reading that explained beyond a couple of names who they were, why they were risking their lives, what became of them, why they were in Tombstone. There was nothing at all like that. So throughout the the 1990s, I was reading more and more books. Um, I was working, obviously, my day job, trying to make ends meet, um, going about my business and... um, and through the 90s, you know, there was a another major book published in 1997 by Casey Tefatilla, which which cut through a lot of uh, the fiction and, and a lot of the myth that had already been written. So that was a major step forward. But again, it, it, it 
concentrated naturally on the big-time names that we discussed. There was nothing, again, of major substance about some of these guys. So that was something that I mentioned to Gene Smith one time on a subsequent trip. I said, you know, there's, these guys fascinate me. They had great names too, like Texas Jack Vermillion and Turkey Creek Jack Johnson, um, Sherman McMaster. These These names had no background story to them. They had no history to them of any great detail. And I was frustrated by that because I was drawn to their stories in that vendetta ride. So I said to Gene on one trip, I said, you know, you're a a great genealogist. Um, Why don't we join forces and try to unlock some of their stories? Because if I'm interested in it, I'm sure other people might be interested as well. And that's how that began um, that partnership began between Gene and Chuck and myself of trying to dig deeper into those records. And that, that happened through the 1990s. So that's the seed that planted that. Now, was was Texas Jack your first book? So, no. Um, the, the problem that we both faced, uh, myself in particular, was that because nothing much had been written, you're starting from a blank canvas. You're starting from scratch. And, you know, if, if you and I were today to sit down and say, we're going to write a new Doc Holiday biography, we would have at least 10 books that we could draw on that have already done a lot of research on Doc Holiday, for example. So you'd have a, a great deal of information and work already done for you. We were we decided, and that was our choice, to look at some of these lesser-known guys so nothing much had been written about them. So we were starting from a blank canvas. So instead of just starting on one particular guy, we just threw open the whole Vendetta posse and, and we both went at it um, trying to gather information on all of them at the same time because... Nothing much had been written about any one particular man. It was. It would have been um, very difficult just to sit down and say, okay, we're going to write about Sherman McMaster and we're going to concentrate on him because there'd be long periods of time where we just wouldn't be able to find anything. So instead of getting frustrated by that, we just threw open the door and started um, researching all of these guys at the same time to gather as much information as we could. So we were, from I focused in on the Vendetta writers because that was something that intrigued me. As I mentioned before, I wanted to know what motivated them, why they were risking their lives for um, for the Earps and to some extent Doc Holliday. So there were there were five. Uh, there was Texas Jack Vermillion. There was Turkey Creek Jack Johnson. There was Sherman McMaster, there was Charlie Smith, and there was Dan Tipton. So they were the five additional members to the Vendetta Posse that included Wyatt, Warren Earp, and Doc Holliday. The eight eight of them were in total, but there were the, the other five that I really wanted to dig into. So Jean and I, over a period of years, because Jean was working, you know, a job. She runs a, a, a small business in Safford. Uh, Chuck also was um, working in the mining industry um, and I had my job and and as you know life takes over at some stages and you just have to 
put aside your major hobby and do other things, necessary things. Um, so it was a long process, Mike, of trying to gather as much information as we could, look at what we had, and then decide, you know, where to go because it. Uh, all these guys came from different backgrounds in the United States, different states, different origins. So, you know, you couldn't just go to one place and find everything you needed. You, this was going to be a major task. It was going to take a lot of time. Um, so that's why we had that original scattergun approach because we just couldn't focus in on one particular thing. So that's what ignited my fuse and that's what really got me interested in these guys. So um, I was very lucky, you'd have to say, that I sat down at a table with two people that had great research skills and taught me great research skills. As you moved forward and you started... Well, you were not moving, started, but as you moved forward and you were deep into research, both you and Gene, and probably Gene's husband helped out as well, the three of you, there had to come a point to where you were like, we're uncovering more about Texas Jack, and... I want to focus on that book first. Like there had been a discussion, like I think we need to do Texas Jack first or how did it come about that you guys decided Texas Jack is the one we're going to write about first? Well, Texas Jack um, was the one that stood out because he seemed from everything I'd read, he seemed to be the only member of that five-man group that I mentioned that had had his origins discovered, that had his correct name discovered, um, and that had been actually uh, subjected to some kind of research. And that began with a book on Doc Holliday um, called The Frontier World of Doc Holliday, um, and that was written in the 50s by a female author named Pat Yarns. Now, she, uh, for whatever reason, decided that a guy named John Wilson Vermillion was Texas Jack. So, you know, we immediately hooked onto that because it was the only piece of solid information that had been written to date at that time that, that seemed to peg him with a full name, with with his origins um, and had a, had a, a tiny paragraph of backstory to him. It, it mentioned in the book that she claimed that this John Wilson Vermillion had returned home after the vendetta to his home in, um, in Virginia and raised a family and, you know, gone about, about his life. He'd sort of dropped off the Texas Jack um, uh, nickname and just resumed normal life. And, so we, we thought, oh, okay, well, that's a paragraph. That's, that's It's a decent paragraph. It, it mentions places. It mentions a full name. So let's start there. So Texas Jack seemed like, you know, someone had already discovered who he was, and we thought, well, maybe we can flesh out a bit more about who he was and tell his story first. So that's why he popped up first as a, as a sort of a potential – article or even a potential booklet or a book so we thought okay we've got the, the makings of something here and as i mentioned before casey tefatilla then 
included a photo of this particular guy um, in his book that was published in uh, 1997, and I thought, well, wow, that, you know, if Casey Teffertill is saying uh, this is the guy, then this must be the guy, so let, let's really get stuck into him. So that's how we began focused on Texas Jack. But the problem was that once Gene got her claws into the genealogy side of it, which is basically where you have to start with these people, you know, you need to find out where they were born. You need to find out where they grew up, what influences they had, why they might have gone west. You need to find out their age, their occupation, all those things that go into making the person who he is. You need to start at the beginning and find that out. But when she went to do that, nothing she found tied John Wilson Vermillion to the Tombstone story. In other words, none of his details, his name, uh, his occupation, none of that was turning up in the records in Cochise County. Uh, and so that immediately raised a red flag with myself because I was particular about getting the truth out there. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. If nothing is, nothing is adding up to what Pat Jones wrote in the 1950s about this guy, there's something wrong here, there's something not adding up. So we both thought, wow, this is something uh, This is something that could turn into a bigger story because if, if these people were wrong about him, then maybe we had a chance to set the record straight. Hold on. We have some sorry about the static, everybody. I, there's some static on the line. Are you moving around? No, I'm good. Okay, there you go. The static went away. Um, so you're doing all this. You decide that Texas Jack is going to be the book to to write about. And we, we only uh, got no, like... No, not, 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 not the book to write about. At this stage, I hadn't written anything. Oh. Like, I was, still, I was still a guy that just had a, had a real interest in these, in the vendetta. And I wanted to unlock who these guys were. I didn't have a book in mind. I, I thought maybe at most I might be able to write an article, mm -hmm. um, to you know, a brief biographical article. Um, so books weren't on even on the radar at that stage. Gene and I were – Gene had never written anything and I had never written anything, but what we were uh, engaged in was trying to get the facts first to identify exactly who these guys were. So um, – yeah, books weren't even on the radar then because this was nineteen. You know, this was the late nineteen nineties. The internet was just taking off, and um, we had grave doubts about what had been published previously. Put it that way. But when you had all this information together, did you say to Gene, or say to yourself, or say to your family? You know, or and say, you know, Peter, I think I've got something here. Maybe an article or maybe a, a small pamphlet. How did it go about that Peter Brand, who's cruising around Australia with a and is coming to Arizona and talking to a lady and her husband that are in period peace, say to himself or somebody around you, I need to take all this that I've learned and get it out to the public? Um, happened over 
the time. So none of these, none of these things. One of the one of the things I will say uh, to anybody who's contemplating doing research on on anything to do with tombstone, you're going to meet a lot of controversy because there's a lot of people who think they know the story inside out and back to front, mainly through movies or TV shows. There's a lot of people who um, who write, but write about myth and legend because that's very popular. Um, so if you try to break down any of those myths or legends or try to cut through something that's been accepted for a long time as fact, you're going to face opposition and you're going to face criticism and you're also going to be alienated to some extent if you're going against the grain. And I think that probably holds true not just in tombstone research but in life in general Mm -hmm. if you're going against the popular thought even if you've got facts to back it up you're going to run into trouble so what i wanted to do uh it it was extreme but i felt necessary i i decided i had to go and meet the vermilion family over in tennessee i thought that's something I need to do. I can't just write them a letter and say, hi, it's Peter Brand from Australia. I want to know about your family because people don't respond well to that. So I thought I'll fly, I'll invest some money and time and I'll fly to Tennessee and I'll meet this family. So I did. In 1997, I, I got on a plane. I flew um, over to Nashville rented a car and drove up and got to Bristol, uh, a town um, where I knew the the descendants were living. I rang them on, on a payphone back then before we had cell phones and I introduced myself on the spot and luckily uh, the grandson of John Wilson Vermeer was blown away that an Australian would be interested in his family and he invited me over to have... Um, to have a cup of coffee and talk about his family. So in 1997, I did that. I went and visited him. Um, he was the great... Uh, sorry, he was the grandson of John Wilson Vermeen, who everyone had claimed was Texas Jack. And I sat there and we had a great chat, like at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours. He was very, very hospitable, very generous with his time and a lovely man. He was 88 years old. And here I was, uh, this Australian sitting in his lounge room talking about his his, um, his grandfather. And and one of the things that hit me was the generosity of the, the, this person. You know, he, he didn't know me at all. He didn't know what my motivations were. I just told him that I was really interested in the Tombstone story and that his grandfather had been um, pegged as being Texas Jack. He knew nothing of the history of that. He knew, he was aware that people had said that. He was, uh, he'd given a, a photo of his grandfather to Casey Tefertilla to publish in his book. So he was aware of the, the theories, but he had nothing that really, uh, again, tied his grandfather to Tombstone. So I had a great meeting with him. Uh, I took a lot of notes. We took some photos of him. Uh, he was proud of, uh, you know, proud to be photographed, and and I left in 1997 there, and I, yeah, I flew back to Australia, but I was none the wiser because I was in that I'd met the family, and I, I, you know, being proud to do that, and I took 
copious notes of everything that he said, but nothing he said tied his grandfather to Tombstone. So I was back at square one, but pleased to have made the flight and done that legwork because you can't, some of this stuff you just cannot do via letters and emails now. You, you have to go face-to-face with people and explain who you are, what your motivations are, what you're trying to do. You're trying to get to the truth. And people respond, most people respond better to that than, you know, a letter or an email. So you're, you're cruising through, and we're, we're slowly coming to the end. Um. 55 minutes comes up fast. Wow, we're already there? Yeah, we're at 52 minutes right now. Man, I haven't even got to the book yet. No, so so if I beg you, will you do a, a part two and a part three? I'd love to do a part two and a part three. I'm sorry, I, I really didn't realize that that the lead up to this would take so long. I'm sorry about that. Well, no, it's, it's not a... It's it's actually fascinating. I think the I think the listeners probably in his van or truck or wherever they're driving or working out going. It's a, a fascinating story. So please don't. Um, there's a lot of information to tell, and as things are progressing and and you're talking to the Vermillions, and you get home and you realize that. It might not have been the trip that you were looking for, and it, there was no tie to John Vermillion to Jack Vermillion. It didn't stop you, though, from continuing the research, did it? It discouraged me, I have to say. Um, it, it, you know, it was like a setback, really, because let's face it, I, I had I had invested a lot of money and time um, on that trip. But I felt it needed to be done, but I wasn't complaining. I was just a little discouraged that it hadn't produced more evidence um, to tie him to Tombstone. That evidence would eventually come um, much later on, um, but it would have the opposite effect. It would rule John Wilson Vermeer out as being Texas Jack. That would take many, many more years. Well, so we're talking a, a, a long journey of time here. This wasn't an easy thing to do. So we're going we're gonna to end the podcast at that because I believe my heart tells me that the second part of it, as we inch our way towards talking about the book and talking about the stories and what happened, it's going to be a part two. Um, I want to thank Peter. This was an amazing Hour, way better than I expected. Um, for me, I was sitting here in my chair, like pumping the sky, like I couldn't believe I actually have you on the phone and you're telling a wonderful story. Um, I also want to reach out, I, even though I've never met him, I want to reach out to Eric J. Wright on WWHA because he has a wonderful written article, uh, a written interview with you um, that was very inspiring for me to contact you and say, Oh my gosh, I got to get that. What I read about in the journal, I got to, we got to talk about it in real life. So thank you, Eric J. Wright at the WWHA for a a fantastic article and and inspiring me to get here with Peter today. If you, Eric's a a very uh, dedicated um, young researcher of the old West 
He's a assistant editor at the Tombstone Epitaph. Uh, he writes for the Epitaph. He also conducts interviews for the Wild West History Association Journal, the one that you just mentioned. He's very supportive of of a lot of people, including myself, so I can't thank him enough. Well, and with that, if you want to get a hold of uh, Peter's books, um, and read them, which I recommend you do. I actually use them as reference guides. So not only have I read the books, I use them constantly for reference. You can contact, uh, go online and contact Peter at tombstonevendetta.com. Uh, his books are there for sale. Uh, I think they're around $35 and that includes shipping and handling. So it's an amazing offer. Like you're not going to get in their high quality books. The Vendetta Ride is is larger than your average book and the font is large for me. It's fantastic. And the pictures are insane. Like if you guys want to get some um, amazing books about history and the backstory of Tombstone, again, you can do so at tombstonevendetta.com. You're going to find the story of Johnny Tyler. You're going to find the story of Texas Jack Vermillion. And maybe somewhere in there, if you can't find it, you can email them about getting the life and crimes of Peter Mallon. Of course, I Perry, want to thank... Perry Mallon. The, I, just, I just create you there, Mark. It's Perry Mallon. Perry Mallon. Thank you. Perry Mallon. Perry Mallon. And... And he used he used aliases, but um, yeah, his name was Perry Mallon. And Perry, I'm sorry. That, that, that's quite interesting because he re- interacts with Doc Holliday, but there you go. And so, Perry, yes. And so I also want to thank the WWHA, that is the World History, uh, excuse me, Wild West History Association. You can find it at wildwesthistory.org. The journal, the quarterly journal is fantastic. It's 75 bucks a year, 125 for two years, or if you do three years like I did, it's 175 bucks. You save $50. So you're not going to get, you're not going to miss out on the journal, which is freaking great. And there's interviews and pictures and articles and history and it's researched history. That's the best part because so many people go to Pinterest and they post black and white photos and they go, oh, there's Billy the Kid. Well, no, it's not. Or they'll post a picture of Morgan Earp and no, that's not Morgan Earp. So if you are somebody who truly, truly is looking for history, Wild West history, you definitely want to check out Wild West History uh, Association at wildwesthistory.org. I got 20 seconds left. So please go forward, be good humans, make sure that you wrap the arms around the people that need some help. There are so many people in the world that need love and support. Um, do it and go help them. And if you have a food bank near you, donate to a food bank because it's a worthwhile cause. And we'll see all of you next time. <laughs>